When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Today we have, I think, eight questions. Yes, eight questions. A lot about depression, OCD, becoming a parent. We get into sexual abuse and healing. Um, overlap between ADHD and PTSD, and all sorts of interesting stuff. Without further ado, let's jump right in. This first question says, hey, Katie and Kenyans, I'm recovering from a severe depressive episode where I attempted to commit suicide many times. My question is, what happens next? I've talked about pretty much everything I can think of surrounding the topic. I've made some changes in my life and I'm trying to move forward. However, something is still pulling me back. I can't seem to keep up the getting better streak for very long. I'm doing well, and in a matter of weeks, sometimes days, I'm back to feeling unmotivated, numb, irritable, and sad. Please help. I'm at a loss here. Any ideas or advice would help me greatly. Thanks. And P.S. The attempts happened a little over a year ago. I am still in therapy twice a week, and I check in with my psychiatrist every month because I am on antidepressants. Okay. A lot to unpack here. Now, whenever we struggle with depression or suicidal thoughts or the combination of both, remember, not everyone who's depressed has suicidal thoughts and not everyone who's suicidal is depressed, right? So the way to continue what this person's calling their getting better streak, I have a couple of thoughts. Number one is not to have it be all or nothing. For some reason, our brains are pulled into this, like, I'm either doing everything and feeling so much better or I'm not at all. And There's no in-between when life is really in the in-betweens, meaning we can have something happen, right? Have a hiccup and someone's rude to us or something doesn't go well at work or school or with a friend or whatever. And we're able to like move forward and be okay. We can feel down for like an hour, but we push through, right? Instead of this all or nothing, this like once one bad thing happens, we're like, well, fuck it, it's over, right? And we swing into depression and we, I'm not saying we uh, like cause that in ourselves, but we allow this like all or nothing. It's either good or bad. It's never just okay. And I would encourage you maybe to journal or even just think think to yourself, take some time and think about what it would look like to have an okay day. We're not on a getting better streak. We're not in a depressive episode. What does that look like? Does it mean that maybe we run a little late in the morning, so we're kind of stressed and we're like, Ugh, or we you know, someone's kind of mean to us, but it doesn't, we don't know if it's even to do with us because it's like in line of Starbucks. You know what I mean? What's this kind of hum high blah day? What's that look like? Tell me about it in detail. Run through your basic to-dos during times like that and let me know what that looks like because I'm afraid that we might be swinging from one to the other because we only know the extremes or maybe only feel comfortable in the extremes. So you have to be, get a little curious do a little research on your own about that. So that's one idea. The second, and I think someone left a comment below expressing this as well. 
that sometimes it can feel really scary to get better. And I've talked about this too in the past where it's like, we don't really know what comes after feeling good for a little bit. What does it mean if I'm not depressed anymore? Or if I don't have suicidal thoughts anymore? Who am I? What does that, what do I do? Right? It can feel very foreign, very terrifying, very scary. And I know it sounds weird, but sometimes we can be comfortable feeling depressed. We can be like, well, I'm used to that. I know depression. I know suicidal thoughts. I know, you know, attempting to take my life. I can handle that. But this is like good feeling. I'm not so sure, right? It's a little more foreign. It can be a little scarier. And if that's the case, talk with your therapist about this. Well, again, we have to kind of not role play, but maybe like dream a dream or think things through, play it out. What would it look like for you to be happy? What if you didn't have depression anymore? I've talked about this in the past. I love this type of therapy called solution-focused therapy. Now, not all of it, but I like the part of it where we ask this miracle question like, okay, so you woke up tomorrow and you no longer had depression. How would you know? And we just walk through like, okay, I wouldn't take my antidepressant that'd be weird. I would Maybe I wouldn't go to therapy. I don't know. Maybe I would just have this better outlook on life. And it can help for us to think about that. What would that look like? Do we get scared? Does that feel a little foreign as well? Are we, are we worried about what that means for us to be better? Do we not know who we are? Is this an identity thing? And I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but these are just some of the things that I know have like caused my patients to get hung up on their mental illness, whatever it might be. So that's another thing. And then the third and final, and my like, what I would try first, because it's not easier, but it's like, it's something we need to work on anyway, is building up our resilience. Now, what I mean by that is these getting better streaks. I don't know what they look like. I presume they're, you know, you doing all the right things, you know, X, Y, Z. Again, it can be kind of in the middle. I would prefer it to not be so extreme from the the opposite of depression, right? I want it to be kind of in the middle. But we need to do things to take care of ourselves, starting with basic needs, showering regularly, eating regularly, drinking enough water, making sure we're getting enough sleep, all the things we know we should do, right? But they really do help us better manage our mood so we don't have these drastic swings. Also, resilience can look like, you know, doing some more work in therapy, journaling, doing impulse logs. If you're feeling suicidal, impulse logs should be something that you access all the time. I talk about them in my book, Traumatized, and there's a website, self-injury, I think it's just selfinjury.org, maybe .com. I'll look it up really quick. But they, um, they talk about using the impulse logs and it can be incredibly, incredibly helpful. Okay, it's, it's selfinjury.com forward slash impulse log. Um, Anyways, using those tools, doing things to better take care of yourself will help build up your resilience, meaning that you're better able to weather life storms. So if something does go wrong, we don't swing into this deep depressive episode. We can like, we can handle it. We can hang in there, right? And I want you to feel like that. I know life can really beat us up sometimes and there's going to be days where we don't feel good, but I don't want that day to turn into other days and weeks and months and then attempted suicide, right? I want you instead to have these little boop, these blips where, oh, I feel really good. I feel not quite as good, but I can manage, right? So we want to build up that that ability to weather life storms and that's resilience. And that's like, you know, having coping skills, uh, taking care of those basic needs, 
And also, I want to throw out there that it's possible that your antidepressant isn't beneficial for you. There's a thing called poop out. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I've worked with a ton of patients over the years who are on antidepressants. And a lot of times we can, it can start helping us. We're like, oh my God, I feel so much better. And then for some reason, it just stops being as effective and we don't really know why. And poop out could be one of those things. Maybe our body and our brain is just like, you know, I'm used to this. It's not helping me anymore. And we might need to be on something different. Um, those are just some of my thoughts. I'm glad that you're talking through the the attempts because people don't talk about this enough, but when we, you know, attempt to take our own life, it can be very traumatizing, right? We legitimately are threatened and it can be really overwhelming to our system. And it's important that we process it through so we can move forward. But there's a lot of other things that we can do to keep ourselves motivated, to keep ourselves connected and, you know, feeling better able to manage and weather the the ups and downs of life, really. I hope that helps. If any of you have any other ideas or thoughts or advice, feel free to leave it in the comments down below. But with that, let's move into question number two. And question number two says, hey, Katie, I have OCD, otherwise known as obsessive compulsive disorder, and I am terrified of becoming a parent. I imagine that I will be super hard on myself trying to parent, quote unquote, the right way. And the fact that there are no clear-cut answers to everything is going to drive me crazy. There are so many disagreements out there about parenting and so much judgment when someone parents the quote-unquote wrong way. I'm also really worried about messing up my kid or accidentally traumatizing them. It just sounds super overwhelming. So my question is, is this a valid reason to avoid having a child? Or should I try to overcome the OCD and have a kid anyway? Okay. Now, uh, and there was a comment, and I'm just going to read this because they're very similar. It says, similarly, I'd love to adopt and possibly foster, depending on a lot of things, when I'm older, so not yet. But I'm very aware of how difficult it is to raise biological kids, let alone kids who often have a history of trauma. I'd be so scared of messing them up even more, but I just want to create a home for kids where they can feel safe and loved. Okay. To have children or not have children, it's a big decision. And unfortunately, most people don't give it any thought. If thought at all, right? They just can get pregnant on accident when we're young or think that this is the next thing they should do and not really give any oomph, any work, any thought, like I said, to how to raise a good child and how to be a good parent. And that's really unfortunate. And I think we kind of see that in the mental health field a lot and hence why a lot of people, you know, grow up neglected or abused or we have a f- incredibly full foster care system in the States and I'm sure other parts of the world have similar issues. So the fact that you're even worried about it, contemplating it, wanting to be a good parent means I have no doubt that you can do that. Now, when it comes to mental illness and being a parent, here are my thoughts. First of all, everybody's got their ish. Some is diagnosable, some not. Also, many parents don't ever go to get help, so we don't really know, right? But as long as we, the parent, are doing our best to manage it, meaning getting the help, we're in therapy, we're trying to better understand ourselves and our symptoms. And when our child gets a little older, enough where we can communicate a little more clearly, I'd probably say maybe three or four is when we'd start. We need to start talking to them about it. Now, not in an overshare parentify this child kind of way, but more in a like, I'm sorry that mom lashed out. You know, mommy gets upset sometimes too. And she didn't think about how that could feel to you. And I want to say I'm sorry, right? We need to start 
educating children about emotions and making them feel very normal because they are instead of lashing out, uh, maybe, you know, acting out of our symptoms, not communicating with the child or trying to pretend shield them from emotions. No, no, no. Everything's fine. Right. When they know it's not children sense more than we realize instead of trying to, you know, shut them down, like push them away or cut them off from the emotions. We bring them into the conversation and we help them be a part of it. We can even talk about, you know, I'm going to leave you with grandma or I'm going to leave you with the babysitter because mama has to go to therapy or dad has to go to therapy or mom and dad have to go to therapy. You know, we go talk to, I don't know, Mrs. Katie about, you know, all the stuff that's hard for us. You know, sometimes you feel sad or mad, right? And that's what we go talk about. I know this sounds kind of silly and people are like, do you really talk to kids about like that early? Yes, the sooner the better. We should be teaching in school always emotional intelligence, but we don't. And parents don't teach it often either because they're not aware or they were raised in a generation or in a culture where that wasn't accepted, but you can change that. So overall, those are my thoughts. So the fact that you have OCD and you're really worried about being a parent or terrified, you actually said, I would work on that in therapy. But don't let that prevent you from being a parent if that's really what you want to be. As long as we're aware of our symptoms, we communicate them with our child when, you know, when we're able. Also, it never hurts even if they're a little, a little peanut, you know, like nine months, you can still talk to them, right? I talked to Roxy and she doesn't even speak English, right? So we can still have conversations, but as long as you're working on it, because OCD can be overcome, um, work on it understand where it's coming from for you, how your anxiety drives it, what we can do to calm our system down. And then if you want to be a parent, be a parent, but don't let your OCD decide that for you. I don't like to think that our mental illness can take away a decision. It more, it makes us, instead of it taking away a decision, it forces us to acknowledge our issue and get the help for it so that then we can do whatever we want, right? It should never get in the way. It should just be another thing that we're managing. Like in life, we manage all sorts of things. And this just happens to be one more. Now with the adopting and fostering, it can it can be difficult depending on the age of the child that we you know, adopt or foster. And there is often a history of trauma, not to mention attachment issues, reactive attachment disorders, incredibly common. <clears throat> also just think of how unstable their life is. It's, I really, I really feel for the kids in the foster care system. Um, As long as you are working your best to, again, communicate with them, create a safe home where they feel okay, they feel loved, it's going to be great. Again, don't let your concern for maybe possibly doing the wrong thing make you think that you're going to. Because like I said, too many parents don't even consider that. Don't even worry about that. Don't even think about what it means to be a parent. They're like, oh, we got married, I guess we should have kids or, oh, I didn't use protection. I guess I'm going to be a parent, right? So the fact that we're even thinking about this means you're going to be just fine. Okay. Also just, I throw it out there because I'm in this boat. I don't want to have kids and it has nothing to do with me being a therapist or not liking kids or anything like that. It's just not something that I want in my life. And I want you to know that's an option too. I don't think anyone should tell anybody else what to do with their life. So don't feel pressure to make a decision either way. You have to do what's best for you in your life, in the situation that you're in, and what you really want for your future. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. Question says, hi, Katie, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? It says some 
Something at work regarding sexual abuse brought up memories I'd always known were there, but never thought they'd have an impact on me. Isn't that crazy how we can be triggered and like, it's overwhelming and we hate it, but there's like, yeah, we just thought we'd stuffed it down deep enough, right? I'm now realizing it's probably had more of an impact than I thought. And I've been having what I assume are flashbacks. I've been considering bringing it up in therapy, but now when I think about it, I'm just like, absolutely not. And even considered finding another therapist. I'm not going to, but even the consideration of telling her something like that has freaked me out so much. I wonder why. Let's be curious. I'm realizing there's probably much more to work on than I initially thought. I agree. To make it more complicated, there's also what I assume are repressed memories coming up of a similar nature, but I don't know if I just, I've just made them up. Where would you start? Thank you for everything you do. Okay. Obviously, my advice is to tell your therapist, but I know that your your brain's like, absolutely not. So where I would encourage you to go first is to start, you have to tell me if what you feel safe doing, but start either journaling a little bit about what's coming up, just bullet points or memories of flashes that you get. I want you to, to start paying attention to this instead of trying to stuff it down. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's terrible. Also, we can, you know, work on some coping skills to manage like body shakes. I don't know if dissociation happens, but you said you assume they're flashbacks and this can prevent us from, you know, getting too overwhelmed. You can count colors in the room, how many things in the room are brown or green or black or whatever. Stomping our feet, uh, splashing cold water in our face. There's all sorts of things we can do to help keep us present. But I encourage you to jot these things down. Start making a little record or a trauma timeline. Like if you have an idea of when you think this happened, can we plop that in there? And then with any other things around that time, like, oh, I remember my brother had that birthday party. We went to the water park or whatever, right? We have these funny, you know, little memories that will be peppered in. Start paying attention to that, writing that stuff down. Um, just to start attempting to make sense of it. And then when we feel ready, which I would encourage you each week to try considering maybe maybe this week's the week I tell my therapist until we feel okay enough to tell them. And I also am curious why we don't feel okay talking to them about it. Is it because we haven't talked to anybody about it? We've never said it out loud before. Is it because we don't feel safe with them or able to talk about it? That's kind of important because if we have been seeing someone for a while and we don't feel safe to share with them the things that we need to share, it's worth considering whether that's a good fit or not. I'm not saying that's the case here. I just want you to consider that, okay? Um, but then trying each and every week to bring it up. And if you have things written down, sometimes you can just hand them off to them at the end of a session so that next week you can talk about it. You know, if you're not ready, we can say, hey, the, I had a, you know, so I had memories that popped up and I wanted to give this to you so we can talk about it next week. I know you're going to be like, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. But sometimes we just have to like, almost like white knuckle it or like rip the bandaid off and just put it out there because we're going to have to start making sense of what's coming up for you little by little. There's no rush. Remember, the first thing is going to be building up some of those coping skills, some of those ways for you to manage, whether that's through journaling, stomping your feet, the grounding techniques, or whether, you know, that means that we join a group. The hopeforrecovery.org has wonderful groups for trauma survivors. Um, 
There can be all sorts of different things we can do to, to take care of ourselves. And so we're going to want to build those up a little bit because as we tippy toe back into these old memories, it can be really overwhelming as you're experiencing with the flashbacks. We just want to make sure that you're okay. And if you ever feel like your therapist is going too fast or giving you too much too fast, it's okay to say, I can't do it this, you know, I have to stop. We want to go at a pace that's not re-traumatizing, that's very therapeutic, that feels okay. And I know doing this work is hard. And it goes against everything in our body to talk about it because it's really uncomfortable and there can be shame and blame and embarrassment and all sorts of stuff associated with it. However, it's worth it. It does get better. We just need some support and you'll be surprised how, uh, what's the word, relieving, I guess, or like, I, I imagine like a weight being lifted when we're able to finally talk about these things and get support and validation from someone. So push, push yourself to do it. Um, try every week. Okay. But that's how I would start is the coping skills and maybe the journaling or the trauma timeline. Now there was a comment on this. It said, I was actually debating on discussing this very topic with my therapist. Since my last session, someone sent me a friend request on Facebook and it was very triggering because for over 40 years, I've suppressed the fact that this person molested me as a child. He groomed me and took advantage of the fact that I was emotionally abused and had trust issues. Why after all these, all these years is this bothering me as though it just happened? Because we never processed it. We just stuffed it down. Is it possible that he still remembers what he did to me? Of course. What a dirtbag. If so, why in the hell would he send me a friend request? Because people like that, manipulators and abusers, sometimes lie to themselves so much so that they're like, we were the best of buds. They really loved me. I know they did, right? We can't, it's hard for those of us who aren't abusive to imagine what goes through an abuser's mind. I mean, also it could, and I'm not saying this is the case, but it's possible that they realize the wrongs of their ways and they want to apologize. But usually it's because they think that it was a loving relationship. They're they're demented. Essentially, their brain it they it's like false beliefs. It's almost like they have delusions about the past, and that's usually why. But you know, there could be a lot of different various reasons. Um, a lot of times they're narcissists, and so they're like they want to be back in touch. See, I still have control over this person. It can be like a power move, which I know is gross and creepy too. Says I haven't laid eyes on this person since I was a teenager. How can bringing up the past help me after all of these years? Should I let sleeping dogs lie? Mentally, I am not prepared to deal with this. Thanks for all of your help, Katie. Of course, I think getting the right support will mean that you're going to be okay going through this. Now, we don't have to deal with it all at once. I know it can feel very overwhelming, but just like the person who asked the first component of this question, I think you'll be surprised how much of your life is affected by this. I know you're like, oh, I stuffed it down and I've been going forward. There's a reason you're like, mentally, I'm not prepared to deal with this. Probably because we're just white knuckling through life. We're barely hanging on. We just try to stuff things down and, and assume that some of our behaviors or thought patterns or relationship patterns are just due to something that's wrong with us. Remember, shame is huge when it comes to trauma and abuse in our past. So we probably believe a lot of the issues we're struggling with are our fault because some we're broken in some way. And I'm here to tell you, no, it's just your brain trying to make sense of the fact that someone harmed you and groomed you. And it, it's it's a, a huge form of manipulation and can be incredibly overwhelming and stressful. 
And so I think we'll be surprised at how much this has affected us, even though we feel like, oh, I've been doing, you know, fine because we're stuffing it down and moving forward and we're resilient, right? We push through and we can thank our brain and body for allowing us to do that. But this is a good opportunity to process this through. And remember, talk therapy isn't what works for everybody. It might mean that we need to do some somatic work, like through our body, like movement. Uh, while we, you know, remember certain things, we could do EMDR, like the tapping. There's a bunch of different things we could do to help us process it. But I wouldn't let sleeping dogs lie because from my perspective and in my experience, it's affecting you. You're just used to managing it the way that you do. And it's hindering you whether you are able to see it or not. I know that might feel very judgmental. That's not the way that I mean for that to come across. It's just the fact that usually when we have that in our past, we've struggled with relationships currently. Either we have a very controlling partner or have had controlling partners, or we push everybody away. Or maybe we connect really impulsively, feel kind of out of control in relationships. We can struggle with attachment. We can struggle, you know, you can just see, and this might not even be romantic. This could be in friendships where we don't really let people get in to know us because that feels unsafe, right? There's a lot of different things that can, that being groomed and abused even 40 years ago can cause. And I really think that taking an opportunity to get in touch with younger you, hear from, you know, her what she has to say offer some things that, you know, could be helpful and loving and then be able to move on through. Um, yeah. Then, then it's just important. I think we just, like I said, we just do not realize how, how much it affects us. And we can think that we're doing great holding it all together. But if we're honest with ourselves, just the things I mentioned, you can see some of the ways, even just mental illness related, we could have struggled depression, anxiety, Uh, panic attacks, flashbacks, OCD-like behavior, eating disorder, self-injury, addiction, all sorts of things because of abuse in our past. Now, there's another comment that's also related to treatment of PTSD caused by child sexual abuse. I've watched some of the videos on YouTube about self-EMDR. I was tempted to do it because I've been married for 12 years and I still struggle with flashbacks during sex, and there is no way that I could afford EMDR. Do you think this is something safe to do or could cause more harm than good by trying something like that on my own? Now, my gut is like, please don't because I'm afraid you'll traumatize yourself. But I I could get on board for it if you spend a significant portion of time working on some resources. Now, resources in EMDR are a huge component of, I have a video, um, I have many videos with my girlfriend, Dr. Alex Altman. She's a psychologist and trauma specialist, and she talks about resourcing. And resources are everything from having a safe person that you can imagine being with, um, going to a safe place. Now, safe might not be a good word for you. It might just be neutral, a place that isn't safe or scary because, you know, safe can feel just as scary sometimes. Um, So we have those spaces or people. We also have tools, like I said, like the body shakes or journaling, impulse logs, all the different things, the coping skills and resources that we need to help us stay grounded, stay present. And so as long as we have those tools and resources to keep us, you know, grounded, okay, or calm, I don't want you re-traumatizing yourself. That's kind of the worry, right? Then if we spend enough time using those that we feel confident that they will work for us, then we can start tippy-toeing into 
past experiences that were overwhelming and doing the butterfly tapping. It's not ideal. I would see if maybe there's some cheaper options in your area, like doing it through, you know, online, whether that's Talkspace, BetterHelp, things like that. Um, Or if there's like a free clinic in your area. The thing that people often don't realize is there are a lot of really cheap or free therapeutic clinics. Like one of my first jobs was at this place in North Hollywood called the Center for Individual and Family Counseling or the CIFC. And people paid nothing up to, I think, $100 a session, but nobody paid 100. I think I had a patient who paid 20 and five and one that was for free. Um, Yeah. So there are ways to get therapy even when money's an issue. Sometimes we just have to ask. So maybe reach out to like a local, even like local hospitals, you could call or a local treatment center um, and you can just say, hey, you know, I'm looking for low cost therapy for a friend of mine or for my son. You can lie. It doesn't matter. Um, Or you can say for myself, um, you know, do you have any, any in the area that you know of? Because they can refer you and chances are, you know, there is going to be one, especially if you're near a city center, you might have to drive to a city center if you're, you know, like half hour out or whatever, but it could, it'd be worth it, I think. Okay. Hang in there. Now let's move on to question number four. And this question says, dear Katie, I hope you're well. I am. I hope you're well. My question revolves around sexuality. I strongly resonate with the term asexual. Now, if you guys don't know, and I'm sorry, if if I'm doing a disservice to this, please let me know in the comments. However, there can be confusion between asexuality and what's known as aromantic. So asexual means that you experience little to no sexual attraction. And being aromantic means that we experience little to no romantic attraction. So wanting to be in a relationship and not, or wanting to engage in sexual activity or not, right? There's a little bit of a difference. You can be both um, or neither, obviously. Okay. So I strongly resonate with the term asexual, yet for some reason, I long for a relationship. So you might not be interested in sex, but you're interested in a relationship, meaning you're not aromantic. Okay. My therapist said I might not be asexual, but simply feel this way due to fear coming from my past and complex PTSD. And that once I've worked, once I've worked on the different topics, I might feel differently. How do I know and find out? How do I let someone get close without hating it? For reference, I met someone over the summer and went for a rip the bandaid off approach. And I obviously hated it and know it's not the way to do it. But for once I wanted to have, and I can't even pronounce the word, sorry, I'm assuming sex. And it was my decision. I hope this all makes sense. Thank you so much. And as an add-on, this is from the same person who asked the question, I also have pure OCD encompassing homosexuality, which is driven by the thought that as I didn't like what happened, I must be attracted to women. This isn't really helpful as you might be able to imagine. And it causes me even more anxiety around the whole topic. Okay. There's a lot going on here. And I think instead of trying to decide what we are, and feel like we need to, am I asexual or not? Do I like women or not? What's this pure OCD? How is this figuring into it? Maybe we should be kind of curious about sex and sexuality in our life. Now, I'm not saying this is the case for you, but there's a huge swath of people around my age and a little younger and probably still happening because I'm not in church anymore, but who grew up in a kind of purity culture, you know, save yourself till marriage, you're dirty if you don't, no one's going to want you if you don't, blah, 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 blah. Um, 
it fucked us up, man. It like really messed with people's ability to talk about sex, have a healthy sex life. And like you said, even say the words, because the fact that saying the word sex or talking about sexual acts is is like overwhelming to you. I'm a little suspicious. Okay. My, I haven't had a, I have not had a patient who is asexual, but I have had lots of viewers talk to me about it. And it's not so much that the thought of having sex is like, they can't talk about it. It's more that it's just not interesting. It's just something that is very blah. I don't want it. I'm not into it. It's that it's, you know, you could say that someone who is homosexual would have the same thoughts about heterosexual sex or vice versa, right? You could, it's not what I want. I'm not interested. And there's no, no more real thought to it. So the fact that it's hard for you to even talk about it makes me wonder where this is coming from because of the complex PTSD and knowing that, you know, you have that diagnosis. I'm very suspicious of that. And so I would talk with your therapist a little bit about it. I kind of agree with your therapist. I think the, it's a fear because again, asexual doesn't mean I'm scared of sex. It just means I'm, I'm not interested in it. I don't want it, right? I have little to no interest in a sexual relationship. And so talk to your therapist about it. Be curious about this. Don't feel the need to label or decide. I want you to feel free to question and to consider. And it please take the time and take the opportunity to dig into this fear of it and see if we can figure out little by little where that fear comes from. Is it related to our complex PTSD? Does a sexual relationship automatically feel like a violation because that was our past experience? Or um, does it feel like something we don't get to choose and so it feels like forced upon? I don't know. You know, I don't know what your complex PTSD is about. I don't know what it's in reference to, but I do not think that's asexuality. It sounds to me a lot more like PTSD. Okay. Now there was another question um, and also the fact that you have pure OCD and that anxiety component around it um, and the encompassing homosexuality. There's a lot going on here with regard to you and your sexuality as a whole. And instead of feeling like we need to decide what it is, I want you to learn about it and pay attention to these messages you tell yourself and the things you think about it. And let's jot those down. Let's try to make sense of it because you're having that conversation with yourself, whether you want to recognize it or not. So let's listen. Okay. Now, another person said, yeah, this is interesting. I identify as demisexual with no real preference for men or women, but I don't really know if that's because as a child, childhood sexual abuse and childhood emotional neglect, no one was safe. I feel more relaxed and cared for around women and seem more physically attracted to them. But with men, they bring out the BPD trait in me and I experience limerence. Now, I think I'm saying that right. Limerence. I think it's, maybe it's limerence, but limerence is when you, you're like obsessed with someone. Okay. So experience, you know, obsession and can't function around them. And it's super confusing. I'm otherwise asexual and I get angry when everything seems to revolve around sex when that's the last thing on my mind. But is this response and how I relate to and think about others because of quiet BPD or complex PTSD? Now, that like obsession, the limerence that you're feeling around men, that sounds very BPD-like to me. Um, yeah, as far as a PTSD, based on your comment, I don't really have an answer. I other, 
I think the PTSD or the complex PTSD might be showing up for you in the fact that you feel more relaxed and cared for around women, yet, you know, more physically, you're more physically attracted to women, but then with men, you you like become obsessed. I think that kind of dichotomy of how we interact with people could obviously and easily relate back to your childhood sexual abuse and childhood emotional neglect. Um, you know, the the fact that you feel more relaxed and cared for around women makes me wonder if that's where the, the emotional neglect kind of inner child gets that need met. And so I really think inner child work is where it's going to be at for you and how you could work towards healing. Um, I think it's a little bit of both. I know that answer kind of sucks, but the response and how you relate to and think about sex is because of your quiet BPD and your complex PTSD. And as we've talked about in the past, there's quite a bit of overlap between those two, the big differentiator between BPD and PTSD or complex PTSD is that those with BPD have this intense fear of abandonment. And we don't find that in PTSD. Um, also in PTSD, we avoid things that remind us of the trauma and BPD. It's just, it's just more, we're, um, that we don't have that either. So anyways, I think it's both. Now there was another comment. This is the last comment it says, yes. Oh my God. How can you tell whether it's an extreme repulsiveness or to sex or asexuality? Again, I mean, like I said, if I'm doing anything a disservice, you guys let me know in the comments. But from what I've heard from those of you who are asexual, it's more of a just lack of interest. It's just not something you want. The repulsiveness to me is like a, whoop, a little red flag where I'm like, what's going on here? It doesn't mean that we're not asexual. It doesn't mean that we are. It's more about the fact that we're having this reaction. Why? What's so triggering about that? That's what I want to know. And that's what I'd want you to dig into. And there was another comment with a similar question, the extreme repulsiveness to sex or asexuality. I think if we have an extreme repulsiveness I personally do not think of that as asexuality. If you were a patient in my office and you told me you're extremely repulsed by sex, I'd be very curious about your sexual past and where this came from, whether it's a trauma, you know, we were sexually abused, whether it's like a purity culture trauma in church, you know, religious trauma kind of thing, or where it comes from in general. Um, Yeah. So that's how I'd tease it out. To be honest, if we have extreme repulsiveness, I don't think it's asexuality. Now, there was another final, sorry, I was wrong. One more says, I also have a somewhat related question. I am in a traditional marriage, but have had intrusive thoughts about my husband's 20 plus year best friend, who is also married to a wonderful woman. I didn't think I was into an open marriage, but that's what the thought revolves around. How do I know if this is just my trauma brain working through old issues, being hypersexual after extensive suppression in my early teenage years due to homeschooling and extreme Christian upbringing? There we have it, that, you know purity, culture, religious trauma, or if I really want to explore this. I've just brought it up with my therapist last week, but I'm also super hesitant to dive too deep for fear of how it will make me look in her eyes. Thanks for all your insight. It's interesting how we're already judging. You're like, what is she going to think of me if I'm honest about these? I think these are intrusive thoughts. You said they're intrusive thoughts. Intrusive thoughts are, you know, like kind of part of that pure OCD and just a part of anxiety in general. A lot of people have intrusive thoughts, not just those with OCD. Um, the The way to know is if these thoughts are what I would call ego dystonic, meaning they don't feel good. We don't like them. They make us judge ourselves and we think, why would I ever think that? Usually intrusive thoughts are violent or sexual in nature. So they could be like, oh, I could just jump off this bridge or, oh, I could just have sex with that person. Maybe that's what they are for you. And that's really just, I think, trauma brain because anxiety, PTSD, they kind of go together. So 
could be working overtime, could be bringing this up for no reason, but I want to know if it feels icky to you or if it feels, hmm, maybe, right? And it's okay to explore that. There's no judgment around that. Therapy is not the place for judgment. As a therapist, I can confidently tell you that if you told me this, I'm not going to jump to any conclusions about you. I'm not going to judge you for having these thoughts. I'm not going to think that you're wanting an open marriage or that you're not happy with your husband or any of this. I'm just going to think, oh, this is interesting. Let's let's dive deeper into this. Let's figure out where this is coming from. Is this an intrusive thought as kind of part of our anxiety, PTSD, OCD, or is this an actual desire that we have? And there are a lot of questions we can contemplate together, talk through, have you journal about so that we can figure out that answer. I wouldn't necessarily bring this up with your husband at all until we have a better understanding of it because it might be nothing or it might be something and it's okay either way. Okay. But I find the judgment you have with yourself about it already very interesting. And I think it's kind of part of that religious trauma, purity culture bullshit I was talking about. With that, let's move on to question number five. Question number five says, hey, Katie, my question is about therapy. I feel like 2023 should or could be the year that I finish being in therapy. I will miss my therapist, especially miss having someone like her to talk to. I realize that everyone needs someone in their life that they can talk things through with. Agreed. 100%. I can talk to my adult children, and I do have a few online friends that I know would understand me well, and most anything that I might struggle with in the future. What is your recommendation on the best way to transition out of therapy after being in it for many years? I often feel so needy for her attention, and I'm afraid that I'll become depressed without her in my life. What if I can't cope well um, with life without having a therapist? Okay. There's no shame in continuing to see a therapist every so often, as needed. But my best recommendation for how, how do we do this, how do we transition out, slow and steady. Now, personally and with patients, I mean, I've had it go both ways. I've had some patients who are like, I don't think I need to come back. And I'm like, okay. And then we just don't make another appointment. And they're like, bye. And I've had, I had one, in, one patient in particular that would come in and out. He would just call and make an appointment. I'd see him for like two months, maybe three months. And he'd be like, I don't need it anymore. Bye. And then a year would go by and he'd come back. And that was just kind of his pattern. Usually due to like work stress or family stress, he'd just come in for a bit and need to, you know, have some homework, have someone to vent to. And then he was done. I'm kind of that way with my therapy. But I do have a lot of patients who we have to titrate down, meaning instead of, let's say we're doing twice a week, we go to once a week. I check in with them after a couple weeks. How is it feeling? How are you doing? What is this triggering anything in you? Because I think you might be triggered. A little attachment stuff is there. I feel it. We want to check in on that. Then we go down to every other week, then every third week, then every fourth week, and we just start spreading it out. And because you might want to still have her to talk to, you might stop at once a month or once every other month. Because some people do, and I don't think there's anything wrong with this, like having a therapy session out there. Oh, I can talk about that with, you know, Katie later. And it just gives us some sense of like, I can vent about that there. And that's okay. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't want any of us depending on therapy for everything, but I think we can all agree that if you're going once a month, you're not dependent on it because there's so much that happens in our life. I don't know if anybody else has felt this way, but sometimes a week feels like too long or two weeks is too long, right? There's so much shit to catch you up on. Where do I even start? And I think it's very similar, you know, here. So 
I would titrate down little by little. Check in with yourself and know that you can always call and get back in. Make sure you communicate that with your therapist. Hey, I think I want to take a break because you can take a break and then make an appointment. So let's say we titrate down once every other week, once every three weeks, once every four weeks. And we're like, I'm going to take a break and we see how we do panic. Maybe we start to panic. Maybe we start to miss her. Maybe we start to feel depressed. Oh, we should probably call. We should talk about that. We should figure out where that's coming from. That might mean there's a little bit of work left to be done. Doesn't mean there's a ton of work, but we're going to have to manage this. And it's okay to kind of go in and out as we figure it out. Don't feel pressure to like make it cut and dried. I'm in therapy or I'm out. I've gone in and out over the years, time and time again. It's all okay. It's just there as a resource and I want you to use it as such. Don't feel like you have to decide I'm done, you know? It's like going to the doctor. I don't see my doctor all the time, but she's there when I need her. And think of that as therapy. If I start to feel bad, I'm gonna call, make an appointment, okay? Okay, let's move on to question number six. This question says, hey, Katie, why can't I recover from anorexia even though I want to? Hmm. I've always struggled with food restriction from as young as I can remember, but I... Oh, I've put self-imposed limits on my food intake amounts, food groups, etc. regardless of always being in a thin frame. This developed into a diagnosis of anorexia at the start of the pandemic in 2020 because things got bad. I had a lot of patients struggle with the pandemic. I'm seeing an eating disorder therapist, yay, and dietitian, wonderful, and I'm very open with them about all of these feelings and thoughts that I experience. They got me to log my food on Recovery Record. That's an amazing app if you're looking for something to help uh, track your food and your mood. I love recovery record. And I actively try and eat more, even if it's just a bit more. I am terrified of gaining weight despite all the negative symptoms of anorexia that I'm completely aware of, like excessive skin bruising, constipation, low energy, tiredness, brittle and dry hair and skin, brain fog, poor memory, increased ADHD symptoms and anxiety, obsessive food and weight thoughts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. By the way, for some reason, negative symptoms are like the results of an eating disorder. They're never motivating. I don't know why. You think that, that there'd be like a fear and that would trigger us to want to get better. But in my experience, it's it's almost like I've always thought of eating disorders sometimes as like a passive suicidal thoughts. And so we can always feel like, well, fuck it, who cares? And so that I've, I've that's my hypothesis as to why that's not motivating. In contrast, I'm also terrified of the health complications that come along with anorexia. I'm scared of ruining my fertility, having a heart attack, fainting, being hospitalized, etc. But this doesn't seem to stop me from restricting. I feel crazy. It doesn't make any sense why I'm like this and I'm so confused. I almost feel childish for having an eating disorder despite knowing all that I know. I've tried EMDR, schema, CBT, CBTE, DBT, and more, and nothing seems to work. I'm 25 years old and I'm a primary school teacher and I hate the fact that my students point out my thin appearance. The last thing I want is for any of them to be struggling with what I struggle with and I am so, so passionate about mental health and promoting well-being in the classroom. I feel like a terrible role model and a hypocrite as I constantly promote self-love, kindness, and a healthy relationship with one's body and mind, yet I don't apply any of the same mentality to myself. I've recovered before and I think that this makes things worse interesting. I hated myself so much once I gained weight and weighed more than I've ever have that I felt like I had to lose weight again because I was not physically comfortable in my recovered body, especially in Australian summer when I couldn't stand parts of my body touching and getting sweaty. Hmm. I just don't know what to do. 
How do I finally recover and be free from anorexia and the pain that it causes me when all of these barriers are in place? I hope this makes sense, Katie. I've watched you since my early teen years, and because of you, I'm so knowledgeable about mental health that I can teach others about it. I can't thank you enough for being a guiding light. Oh, I'm glad that I could be there. Okay, so we recently got diagnosed, and we've tried a bunch of different therapies, and it just isn't working. But what I didn't hear you say to me or talk about, and maybe we know it and it just wasn't in the question, is what purpose does your eating disorder serve? Because sure, we can focus in like, I don't like parts of my body touching. I don't like it getting sweaty. I don't like being heavier. Ooh, I'm scared. But okay. So where did this come from? What's the root of your eating disorder? I talk about it all the time, the root of the root. It's a coping skill. It exists for a reason. When did it start? You said, as long as you remember. What happened when you were growing up? Were we emotionally neglected? Did we feel... Like everything else was a little out of control. Maybe we moved a lot as a kid. Maybe our parents argued a lot. Maybe, I don't know, we were bullied in school. Where did it come from? We often get too wrapped up in the food and the body appearance and the body image issues. And that's really not what eating disorders are about. It's what they want us to focus on. It's very tricky and it's very sneaky if you think about it. If I'm going to put all my energy, all my thoughts into what I eat and not eat, how my body looks and doesn't look, then I can't think about how shitty I feel, right? I can't think about how hurtful that was that that whatever that person did, blah, blah, right? I cannot do that if I'm only thinking about food and my body. So I ask you, why is it there? What purpose does it serve? That's where we'll find the healing. That's where we'll find the real recovery because it's not actually about the fucking food, sure that sounds good and that makes sense and we can talk about it and we understand you're like i don't like this i'm scared of all the things of course you are but it won't go away because it still serves a purpose so are we numbing out are we wanting to disappear do we struggle people pleasing behaviors or fawning because of abuse or trauma um was our how were how was your family around food was your mom always on a diet or maybe make you eat past feeling full you had to clean your plate the clean plate club is such a toxic thing that we do to kids. Um, I mean, you should eat your vegetables, but do you know what I mean? We teach children like quickly and right away to not listen to their bodies when they tell them that they're hungry or full and it's really wild. Um, okay. You're going to have to do some work on that. We're going to have to be curious, not judgmental about where it comes from. I love, love, love the book, Eating in the Light of the Moon. It's on my Amazon shop. You can find it easily. Just go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. Um, I think Anne, is her name? It's Anita Johnson, I think is her name. Anyway, is the author, but it's a beautiful book. You might find it helpful. It might reveal something to you about your own thoughts of your body and food and all of that, but we're going to have to get to that root or it won't get better because otherwise it's like we're treating just the symptoms and we're like, well, I gained weight or, oh, I'm eating. I don't really care. I know that sounds a little harsh, but that's not what it's about. It's there because something, maybe something feels out of control. Something feels too intense. We don't like how we feel. We don't want to remember this. We don't want to look this kind of way because someone compliment, you know, I don't know where it comes from, um, but we're going to have to dig in and figure it out. And there's no right or wrong answers. You don't have to come up with the answer right away, but we should be a little curious about this. Where, what purpose is this serving? Because it's a coping skill. So it's there for a reason and that's why it won't go away because that reason hasn't been acknowledged yet. And healing, whatever the root is, is how we'll get it to go away. 
okay? Now, there was a comment that said, this question made me think, how do you start this conversation with your therapist, especially if you've been seeing them for a while? While I haven't outright lied to her about anything, I am omitting the truth by not sharing these issues, but I also feel like I have so much to work through. We've only been able to break the surface of trauma talk before I begin to dissociate, and my brain keeps telling me it's not a high priority. I keep setting numbers of when I would actually reach out for help as I'm worried of the health implications, but each time I get overwhelmed as well as embarrassed because I'm an adult. With the thought of admitting this, oh, the thought of admitting this is a struggle. Apologies in advance if this isn't related. This is totally related. And you're working on the trauma. That's probably the reason for your eating disorder. And the reason that it is getting worse is because you're working on the trauma. So my advice would be, to start journaling about this potential, like potential options of how we could bring it up. Because in therapy, I know you have a lot you're working on anyway, but your therapist needs to be aware of this so they can check in on it. This might mean they refer you out to see a dietitian just to make sure someone's checking in on how you're doing with food. We need to make sure it's an eating disorder specialist, um, dietitian. There are tons out there. Um, But if we can say something to the effect of, you know, doing this work, obviously it's stressful. I dissociate, but it's also triggered some like issues I've had with food over the years. That's an easy way to bring it up. Or if we want to write it down, hand it to them because to say it is like, or if we can email, maybe we email. There can be a ton of different ways that we can try to express what we're going through and let them know what's happening without feeling like we really need, you know, like we don't need to say every little word. We don't need to have all the answers as to why it's there or what's really happening. We just have to get at least the beginning of it out. I'm struggling with things with food and wanting to restrict or, you know, doing this work has not only made dissociation more common, but also like my issues with food have kind of come back. And they'll say, oh, issues with food, I didn't know. And you can say, yeah, I, I don't really want to talk about it, but maybe next week, right? We can share a little and say we're not ready to talk more. I know a lot of people forget that. You can bring something up in therapy and then say, that's all I can really talk about right now. It's overwhelming or it's scary or I don't like to. That's okay. We can move up the conversation. That's why therapists keep notes. I jot down a little thing. It says, bring up food issues next session. I highlight it when you leave and I remember to do it next time. So that's how I would start the conversation. Like I said, text, email, Um, dropping it into sessions, saying I don't want to talk about it anymore, practicing saying it ahead of time, journaling about it a little so we can get some language around it. All of those are great ways to start. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hey, Katie, I am in the process of getting diagnosed with ADHD. I'm 35. I've spent a lifetime struggling with depression and social anxiety and hoping, oh, and I'm hoping that maybe getting help for ADHD will help me with those two as well. Random side note, um, my patients who've gone, and this is anecdotal information at best. This is like with some of my patients and some research I read, God, probably like six, seven years ago. A lot of p- patients who take Adderall or the like, very similar, you know, that, that type of medication have found improvement in their depression and anxiety symptoms. Why? I don't know. But some doctors, psychiatrists I used to work with in LA, used to use Adderall in low doses for patients who struggled to find resolution of their depression or anxiety symptoms. Like they tried a bunch of different medications, nothing would help. Sometimes this would work. So talk to your doctor and ask about it. Okay. Um, I've read that ADHD can make it more difficult to do household chores. Yes. And that's definitely a problem for me. 
if I can motivate myself to do it, I can't get my house clean, but it'll look, oh, I can get my house clean, but it'll look terrible again in about a week. That's just life, yeah. I can't for the life of me stick to a schedule because I have trouble making it realistic. And then when I can't stick to it, I beat myself up about it and it all goes to hell. That and the fact that my house is messy then triggers my depression and my anxiety make it even harder to motivate myself to clean. I've given up on making schedules altogether. Maybe I should note that um, I'm a perfectionist as well, which is ironic in a way since I haven't seemed, I can't seem to accomplish much. Could this all be due to ADHD? Would you have any tips and tricks that could help me? Also, could you tell me if there's any overlap in symptoms between ADHD and PTSD or complex PTSD? Now, experts, I don't know why that was hard to say just then, experts do believe that trauma and ADHD have a ton of symptoms in common. Things like agitation and irritability happen in both. Um, Impulsivity, being high risk takers, happens in both. Uh, disorganization, it's kind of what this person's talking about, happens in both. Poor self-esteem happens in both. Inattention and distractibility, uh, problems concentrating, difficulty at work, school, with sleep, chores. There's a ton of overlap in symptoms between PTSD and ADHD. And so I do believe the symptoms that you explained to me could all be due to ADHD, especially the like cleanliness factor and the scheduling. And I know a lot of people assume that... Um, ADHD just applies to like concentration, but you I think that's just because most people don't realize just how much we utilize our concentration to get things completed in our day. Everything from like the organization of cleaning a home or doing things around the house, just think of how much focus or concentration it takes for you to not get distracted by the other thing that needs to be done. For example, if I go into my laundry room to put a load in the laundry because I need to do laundry, I have not grab the other thing that's sitting there and be like, oh, I should probably put this away in the garage. I'm just making like a hammer, let's say. Happens to be in there because let's say I was hanging the picture this last weekend. I'm like, oh, I didn't put that away. A person with ADHD would put the clothes into the washer, probably not even start it, grab the hammer, find themselves in the garage, putting the hammer away, maybe not even put the hammer away, set it down on a table in the garage and find something else that they need. Oh, I forgot to put the Christmas decorations back up in the thing. You can see how this can just like snowball out of control. And that's kind of what sounds like is happening to you is that you're trying to to keep things together and do these organized activities. I know it sounds weird to call cleaning organized, but it is. And I believe that that could be due to ADHD. People forget that, that that's really how it can feel. Um, and because there is so much overlap between ADHD and PTSD, it could be exacerbated by them, right? You could have both and they're just like playing off of one another. And so I'm glad that you're going to get diagnosed and treated. Um, I believe that getting treatment for your ADHD will help out with a lot of the symptoms that you're experiencing that are so uncomfortable. Um, but always know that, that you you have every right to question a diagnosis, question a medication choice, ask for the side effects, make sure you feel confident and comfortable taking something, know what you know what to look out for, how long till you feel better, ask all sorts of questions. It's okay. It's your body. It's your treatment. If you are afraid you're going to forget write them down on your phone and your notes, and that will keep us focused and help us remember when the time comes and we're talking with our psychiatrist. Final question, question number eight says, hello, Katie, as a therapist, if you are seeing a client for a while and could recognize that they had been abused, would you tell the client? Let's say this client is oblivious and doesn't realize that the other person's behavior was abusive towards them. Um, 
or towards the client, and the client is blaming themselves for the abuser's behavior. Would you tell them and explain to the client what has happened, that what happened to them was abusive? I thought this is a great question. And the truth is, in short, yes. But you have to understand that being a therapist with, with situations such as this, we have to tread lightly. Because as many of you have expressed to me over the years, admitting, it's not even just admitting, but I guess that's part of it. It's kind of like validating our experience and admitting that what happened was actually abuse is a very big step. And it's really hard. And it can take us a long time to acknowledge um, because a lot of the minimization and invalidation that we've done over the years helped us survive, right? So we can want to not um, believe that what happened was abuse. And it can also change the dynamic of the relationship because we might still have a relationship with this person, right? So there's a lot of factors to take into consideration when we're deciding whether we would share it or whether we would say that or not. I would most likely identify behaviors and say, oh, that seems kind of abrasive. You know, make these offhand comments, just light things to gauge how they're, if they're able to accept that. Because like anything, you don't want to push too hard or go too fast because then you can lose your patient. They can be like, I'm not, they're like, you're not hearing me. People can get very defensive or they can be like, you don't get it, right? And even if they don't say that, they can feel that and they can act in a different way. And it it can ruin the relationship that you as a therapist have with your patient. And so slowly but surely, I would try to get them to come around to it, but it would take time and it would all be due, it would all be, I guess, decided upon based on how how they respond to those little questions and comments, right? So if a person's behavior is abusive, I would say, oh, that seems kind of harsh. And they'd be like, no, no, I deserve it. Or, But I was a little rude. I'd be like, oh, just to me, that sounds pretty intense. I mean, I would never treat someone that way, would you? You know, I might push back a little bit, but then I'd move on. We got to let that go. We don't want to harp on it too much if they're not accepting. If they're like, no, I would, yeah, I deserved it. Okay, you know, um, we'll move on. I'll allow that just for now, because again, I don't want to move too much too fast. And we can't, you can't force force acknowledgement or awareness. It has to come from the person. So it's more about me just like kind of planting seeds along the way, identifying abusive behavior, saying that, oh, I had a patient that had a similar symptom to you. Sometimes I'll make these things up. You guys, I know that sounds terrible, but it can help, help them feel not alone and not crazy with what they're ha- what's happening. I can say, oh, I had a patient in here a few weeks ago had a symptom like that. They they had abuse in their past. I know that's not what you're talking about. So you plant these little seeds. You know, we work with them on the issues they're struggling with and hopefully slowly but surely they'll come around to it. And the homework that I would have them do would be, you know, based on things that I thought would help them have have realizations or at least educate them about abusive behavior and all that stuff. So in short, yes, but not in the way that you would assume. I'm not going to just come out and tell someone they've been abused. I'm not going to tell them that the the person that they're around is still abusive unless, and I do have to say this, if the patient of mine is under 18, is a dependent adult or elder, then I'm going to have to report the abuse. Because if they're still in that abusive situation, that I ha- I'm a mandated reporter. But other than that, it's more about just slowly allowing you to come to terms with what happened on your own time, right? It's not just because I've recognized it doesn't mean that you have to. Trust me, if as a therapist, like nine times out of 10, well, I'm, I'd almost say 10 times out of 10, I realize things before my clients do. 
but it's up to me to help guide them slowly so that then they can come to that realization too, but on their own, not because I've realized it, because they're able and ready to accept it. Okay. I hope that makes sense. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you for sharing this podcast. That really, really helps. I will see you all next week. Enjoy the rest of your week and do your homework. Okay, bye. 